Welcome, everyone. Uh, today we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So if you'd like to turn there with me, we're going to just uh, park there, take a look at it. Um, you know, it's been a remarkable experience. Uh, I, I preach for four weeks for Pastor Dean when he, every summer now for since 2011, I think. And it's funny because I always pick four, four chapter books. So I did Jonah, I did Ruth. And uh, last October, I thought I'd get ahead of it, and I, and I chose Philippians, um, simply because it had four chapters. And then uh, several months ago, Dean and I you know, decided, realized, um, based on how the Lord was leading us, that we really needed to focus on the gospel. And little did I know, all along, all that reading I was doing about Philippians, it's the book, I mean, it's the epistle of the, of the gospel. And so that's, that's what we're going to be doing the next four weeks. Uh, it's entirely too much to do exegetically, verse by verse. Uh, I asked a friend of mine about it, and he sent me his sermon series. It was 27 sermons. I don't have that, <laughs> that kind of time. So this is sort of a brief look at some of the major themes. Uh, so like I said, we'll, we'll start today kind of in the middle of it, Philippians chapter 2, and I'll read that real fast. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Sabbath rest that you give us every week. We thank you for meeting us here in this place to, uh, for us to offer our prayers up to you and to sing to you and to praise you. We pray, Father, that you open your word to us now, that you cleanse us and purify us with it. Father, that you tear our idols down by it and replace in our hearts a deep and abiding affection for your Son, who you sent into the world to do your will, and he did it perfectly. We thank you for this opportunity, Father, and we pray that you speak to us uh, wherever we're at, um, to our individual circumstances. Father, we pray that you meet us there, as you always do. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, and amen. So a representative of the Philippian church, whose name I can't pronounce, traveled over land and visited Paul in a, in a Roman prison. The representative had, had an update on the Philippian church and an offering that they had gathered to support Paul's ministry. The news wasn't good. The Philippians were struggling. Paul determined that a letter going into the details of their disunity, a detailed defense against false teaching, and a strenuous attack of idols wouldn't be as effective as a straightforward presentation of what they already knew. Paul says in Philippians 3.1, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul knew he didn't need eloquence and rhetoric. He, he needed to tell them again the good news which seemed to have lost its goodness and its power in their daily struggles. Paul needed to give them again the message that had first captured their affections and feel the generosity and compassion that the Philippians were well known for. Uh, several times in the New Testament, the Philippians are mentioned for being super generous and, and really loving people. 
Uh, but at the time that this letter was, was written, they were not doing so well. If you want to know how the church came to be, it's in Acts chapter 16, the entire chapter. It contains the remarkable details of Paul's journey there. He planted the church. He was led there, in fact, by God's direct intervention. It was the first church on the continent of Europe. They had supported him repeatedly, and he knew that they were solid believers. He loved them dearly, but the seed of the faith he planted in their midst is being choked out by the cares of the world. Fear and competing affections were threatening them at every turn. And so Paul gives them what they need, the gospel. He understands that the best way to establish the heart of a believer and the love of God is to not tear down the world, not to tear down idols or mislaid affections, but to give them what they call the expulsive power of the gospel, communicated in its intrinsic beauty and power. Paul mentions the gospel eight times in the four chapters of Philippians. He tells them again the content of the gospel, how the gospel shapes the community, how the gospel shapes the believer's everyday life, and how the gospel frees them to rejoice in everything that happens to them. They are mature. They are well-established. They are still threatened, though, with a return to slavery, to sin, and worldliness. Christians never grow out of their need of the central message of the Christian faith, the good news of Jesus Christ. But before we get into how the gospel shapes a community, how it shapes our ethics, and how it frees us to rejoice in all things, which is what we are actually going to do over the next several weeks, we have to wrap our minds around what the gospel actually is. If asked, most of us would say that the word gospel means good news, right? That's very common. Most Christians, oh, I know what gospel's good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And I find, this is profound even in my own life, well, good news, what's the news? Um, yeah, that Jesus, Jesus saved me, right? I mean, that's usually how we answer this question. I, I don't mean to be rude, but I'm shocked all the time about how I can't really answer that question. What is it? Well, Jesus came, and he was perfect, and he died, and now I get to go to heaven. And we, we, most of us, I think, would answer in some sort of simplistic way that way. Now, obviously, we can't say everything that needs to be said when we are giving a brief explanation of the gospel, so it's understandable. But how well do we really know it? How well do we really know and can articulate the basic content of what the gospel actually is? As we walk our daily lives and consider various doctrines and life issues, as we battle the lies of Satan and the frustration of sin, how often do we tell ourselves and one another the simple, basic content of the gospel? And when we do, what exactly is the content of that news? There are two important things that make up the basic content of the gospel. And without both, you are not actually communicating the central foundational belief about Jesus as taught by himself and the apostles. There's two things, two things that make up the basic content. In the first sermon preached by Jesus, St. Peter declared this in Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, know for certain, that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Okay? That God has made him both Lord and Christ. This is the basic formulation of the gospel, that Jesus is Christ and Jesus is Lord. To understand that Jesus is Christ and to understand that Jesus is Lord is to understand what the gospel is. And Paul thinks that even established believers who have known it can't be harmed in the repetition of it. We need to preach the good news to ourselves, our families, to one another, and to the world. Jesus is Christ, and Jesus is Lord. As Christ, Jesus fulfills the promises of the Messiah, the suffering servant, the perfect lamb, the ideal human. 
As Lord, Jesus is the ideal king, God himself, exercising authority over all of creation, even Satan and death. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, St. Paul expounds on Jesus as Christ and Jesus as Lord. St. Paul shows that the two rails of our faith are God's goodness, demonstrated in Jesus' humiliation as Christ, and God's power, demonstrated in Jesus' exaltation as Lord. As Christ, he was humiliated. As Lord, he was exalted. That's the gospel. Hear and believe, all you saints of God. We are going to unpack these verses to see why Jesus is Christ and Jesus is Lord are so important. Verses uh, 5 through 11 include three things, very quickly. Verse 5 is an exhortation to the Philippians, encouraging them to grab onto and to know, to firmly believe what Paul is about to say. Verses 6 through 8 are about the humiliation of Jesus, and verses 9 through 11 are about the exaltation of Jesus as Lord. So let's begin with verse 5. Verse 5 says, let each of you, oh, I'm sorry. That's verse 4. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is a brief and straightforward introduction. Paul wants them to have this mind. He wants them to lay hold of it. He wants them to have assurance. He wants the knowledge of the gospel firmly established in their minds. The Greek word translated here, mind, is translated in other places as think, concern, mindset, feel, view, and observes. It's quite a varying degree of translations. Paul wants them to have a whole mind. He wants the contours and the shape of their mind to be formulated by the gospel. That's what he wants. He wants them to have a mind that processes data, circumstances, feelings, actions, etc. within the truth of the gospel. And he is not talking to individuals. He says, have this mind among yourselves, the whole community together. He wants the body of Christ to think this way in unity. He doesn't want competing beliefs about who they are and who their Lord is. He wants them to function as a community with the minds formed by the gospel. He wants them to have it because it's theirs in Christ. This is what he says. It's yours in Christ Jesus. It's part of the benefit of being united to Jesus Christ. As it says in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, the Father has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Okay? We're in Christ. The truth is in Christ. Therefore, we dwell in Christ together with the truth. It's ours. It's there for us to lay hold of, to wrap our minds around, to be assured over and over and over by it. We are God's friends, and so we get to know his plan. That's essentially what it means. We know the gospel, and Paul wants them, us, to lay hold of it firmly, fixing it in our minds. So Paul then turns to the first part of the gospel. Okay? This is the first rail of the gospel, the humiliation of Jesus. Verse 6 says, Jesus Christ, who through the, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that's interesting, a thing to be grasped. To understand Jesus' humiliation, we have to start with who he is, who he has always been. Jesus was in the form of God, it says. Now form does not mean a mere outward appearance. It's not like a wax statue. It's not like Jesus just looked like it on the outside but wasn't right, really God on the inside. Form here means the embodiment or true and exact nature, possessing all the characteristics and qualities of something. So therefore, having the form of God is equivalent to saying having equality with God. Jesus is from eternity past God, right? And this is funny. Here we go. Paul is just repeating things we all know. Jesus has always been God. 
As it says in John 1, 1, we all know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 17, 5, Jesus talks about the glory he had with the fathers from eternity past. Now, here's why he starts here. Here's why he starts with something that's so basic and simple we all know. Okay? To comprehend how far Jesus descends in his humiliation, we have to first grasp the height from which he descended. Right? Unless we know how high he started, how low he goes is kind of vague and hard to understand. Jesus didn't come into this world to become Lord. He came into the world to reveal himself as the Lord. This sets the context. Jesus did not enter the story at Matthew chapter 1. He did not earn his status within the Godhead. This puts to death many false teachings about Jesus that are very common. He existed forever as a second member of the Trinity. He is the Lord as he has always been. He has always been the word through whom all things were made and in whom all things exist. The humiliation that Paul goes on to describe is even starker when we see the crown that Jesus already had that he had to lay down in order to go to the cross. He already had the crown. He didn't need to come get it. He was already God, the Lord. He didn't come to earn anything. He came to show us something. That's very important to know. Verse 6 goes on to say that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, there are a number of important things going on here, and I don't believe they're mutually exclusive like a lot of commentaries make them. First, Jesus didn't think that his divinity was something to be clutched greedily. He makes a molehill out of his mountain, in a sense. He doesn't think his divinity is something to be greedily grabbed onto. St. Paul uh, goes on to say that Jesus empties himself and doesn't cling on to his honor and his status as God. He doesn't think his divinity is an advantage used to avoid his calling as the Messiah. Jesus didn't use his divinity as a means of escaping his earthly ministry or his violent death. This is really important to understand. Jesus did not take off parts of his divinity like clothes and put them in a suitcase and hide them under the bed and then head down to Mary's womb. That's not what he did. He took those things with him and was capable of any point of using them, his entire divinity. But he had to set those things aside and not use them. This is what makes his coming into the world possible in the first place. Jesus didn't cling to his rights as God and petulantly refused to do what needed to be done. Okay, it's not like the three members of the Trinity were sitting around the dinner table. Father tells them the plan, and Jesus says, guys, I'm already Lord, so I don't know what you're talking about, but how about I just snap my fingers and we make the sin problem go away? And he didn't think his divinity was something to use as an advantage to get out of what was coming. You can't kill God. Okay, this is why it's so important that he had to lay some of these things aside. You can't kill, kill God. If he were here, there's nothing we could do to destroy him. He also is self-existent. He doesn't need sleep. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need rest. He doesn't need shade. Right? And so if, he, if he's going to experience what we experience, he actually has to set some of those things aside, his self-existence, in order to participate as a human being in the first place. Right? This is why when Satan is tempting him in Matthew 4, it's actually a temptation when he says, make these rocks into bread, because he can. It's also a temptation when Satan says, well, if you're the Messiah, if you're God, you can do X, Y, and Z and get out of this terrible situation you're in. And Jesus decides not to do it. I find it very, I've always found this very confusing. I always thought, like I said earlier, like he actually like takes off his God shoes and hides them in the closet, and then, you know, like he left parts of himself behind or something. But really what he does is he just veils it. John Calvin puts it best. Um, Jesus' humility consisted in his abasing himself from the highest pinnacle of glory to the lowest humiliation. 
our humility consists in reframing from exalting ourselves by a false estimation. He gave up his right. All that is required of us is what we do not assume to ourselves more than we ought. Jesus comes from this position where he doesn't have to endure anything he's going to endure, and he can get out of it whenever he wants. But he sets all of that aside to do it. Okay? He, he doesn't think too much of his godness. He, he takes it lightly. He doesn't use it as an advantage, which is the exact opposite of all of us, which is we're grasping and clutching as much as we possibly can for all the glory and goodness we can possibly pack into our name. Right? We're striving and striving and striving. Service to others was more valuable to Jesus than his own position. How often are we insulted by inconveniences like traffic or long lines at Costco? How many of us think so much of ourselves that we become frustrated and angry when people don't give us our due? I only recently rescinded the executive order that I don't have to clean a toilet. That actually existed. I said, wife, when we were first married, I am the husband. I do not clean toilets. Welcome to the Kloss home. Right? I'm, I'm the lord of this house, and I don't wipe up pee. I mean, that's essentially what I said. And I only, after six years of marriage, rescinded that order. Right? This is the kind of stuff humans do. Um, I, re- I remember this. I, I love my dad, but he did the same thing. I, re- I just remembered, okay, my dad was lord of his home. I am now lord of this home. There are certain things I don't do. Jesus never, ever, ever approached anything that way. Right? He never uses, he never grasped after his, clutched after his divinity. Uh, I did rescind the order, by the way. I, I clean toilets now. Okay, the immediate context of apl- applying this is your own family. Okay, how do you need to serve in a way that gives no room for your own self-importance? As a community, in what way do we need to serve that gives no room for our self-importance? Right? We like to think of ourselves in a rather highfalutin way. Right? There's a lot of things that are beneath us, personally and as a community. We need to think. What Jesus didn't grasp onto anything. He, he set it aside and, and came to serve. We need to do likewise. Okay, now, the second thing going on here is very interesting. It's an echo, actually, from Genesis chapter 3. Who else thought equality with God was something to be grasped? Who else in the Bible thought equality with God was something to be grasped? The word grasped, actually, hold on. It's really dry. It's fascinating. Modern translations use the word grasped. They used to use the word robbed. Somebody thought that equality with God was something to be robbed. uh, And that is Adam. Okay, this is what the echo is going on here. Adam and Eve were told by Satan that God didn't want them to have the fruit because they would be equal with God. And so Adam stood by and watched his wife reach out and grasp the forbidden fruit to attempt equality with God. Now, Jesus obviously is no Adam. This is what Paul is hinting at here. Adam wants to be God and is willing to steal it. Jesus is equal to God already and doesn't see it as a thing to be grasped on greedily. See the con- I mean, they're totally different people. In his humiliation, Jesus established that he is not like the disobedient Adam or Adam's children. Jesus is obedient and humble. Jesus values love and service and submission more than he does self-glorification. Okay, we go on. As Paul goes on to say in the very next verse, verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, servant is actually better understood here to be slave. I don't don't know why modern translations always say servant. I think we're uncomfortable, especially modern Americans, with the word slave or slavery in any way. But really what that word servant means is slave. Paul often used 
this word to refer to himself and other Christians. As he, as he did in Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy considered themselves to be slaves, and they're now talking about how Christ considered himself to be a slave. Have this mind amongst yourselves. The path of life on which we tread is, in fact, slavery. The one who we imitate was a slave. Complete self-abandonment to the will of another. Right? When you get down to it, what is slavery? Right? Slaves don't do what they want. They do what they're told. Slaves don't have a will of their own. Their will is their master's will. And I know, right, as soon as I say that, I'm like, that sounds awful. Like, how is that good? But the Lord of the universe made himself a slave. Okay, He's, he abandoned himself completely to the will of his father. He didn't come here just so he could walk around the Mediterranean fishing and have a good time. He came here to do the work of his father. Jesus lived for the will of his father, as it says in Hebrews 10:7. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me. Doing the father's will was Jesus' food, he says. It was his nourishment. It's what gave him energy and sustenance. Jesus was a slave to the father's will, and so must his followers be. Philippians 2, 7 says he was born in the likeness of men. Now, likeness here is actually the same word earlier used, meaning form. Just as he was in the form of God, he came in the form of men. It is important to understand that Jesus didn't leave aspects of his deity in heaven and enter Mary's womb. He veiled them, and he laid them aside. Have this mind among yourselves. God laid aside aspects of his divinity, divinity to enter human history, a slave to his father's will, a man like every other in temptation and suffering, and yet perfect in obedience, as it says in verse 8. Now, why am I calling this all humiliation? Does it sound like anything humiliating has happened yet? I mean, it sounds like standard fare for us, right? Oh, Jesus had to eat. We eat every day. I don't, you know, it, it, we, it, there's a disconnect here with this word humiliation. But let's stop and think about this for a moment. The creator of all things who existed above every created thing became a slave. And by slave, I also mean that he came to serve continuously without stopping, at no, you know, not considering the cost to himself. He came abandoning his will to the Father. He was the truest slave that ever, ever lived. He took on the weakness and vulnerability of flesh, he, needing sleep and food and water and protection from the elements. He was able to bleed, and he was able to die. Now, our God didn't avoid the material matter of this world as if it were vile in itself. He took on creation, the flesh of a man, to take it with him into heaven glorified forever. This is called the doctrine of the incarnation. Now, this is what's amazing. Let, let's think about this for a moment. It doesn't sound very humiliating because we go through these things all the time. But as I'm fond of saying, if I had come as Jesus, there's some things I would have left undone. I didn't need to experience them, like going to the bathroom. Why would God, I mean, our God experienced going to the bathroom. Why would he do that? Right? Why would he do degrading, gross things, which I always consider going to the bathroom to be? Why He took those things on himself. If any of us were to say, okay, if you were the Lord of heaven and earth, what would you leave out if you were to become a man? And I think all of us would have a pretty long list, right? Well, how about I just eat once a year? Or how about I eat as much as I want and I never get fat, right? <laughs> I mean, if you could control the switches, we would have made a very different existence for ourselves. But that's not what God did. And that's why there's a disconnect for us. Saying that it's humiliating for him to have to do all the normal stuff, it seems weird. But it is humiliating. I mean, think of the humiliating things you have to do. Right? He had his diaper changed. It's gross. Right? He got food poisoning. 
I mean, why would he endure that stuff? I would, in fact, leave that and hundreds of other things out of the whole program if I were him, but he didn't do it. God, Jesus the Lord, degraded himself, lowered himself to a station of a suckling babe. He subjected himself to going to the bathroom to illness to manual labor of a carpenter. Again, this is another thing. If I were going to make myself a man and I were God, I would be able to lift a car over my head. I'd be able to run as fast as a cheetah. But he didn't do that. He came as the most average, nondescript guy possible. Right? He didn't give himself an iron constitution. He didn't give himself the strength of Hercules. Now, gods don't do this. Gods don't do this. Gods don't become slaves. Great men don't become slaves. The gods of the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans were not slaves. They didn't enter the realm of men unless it was to rape, to steal, or to lord over the affairs of mortals. They didn't lower themselves in their dignity. Kings, presidents, congressmen, movie stars, they don't carry their own luggage. Right? Fame, rich people, they don't do things for themselves. My wife used to work as a nanny for an extremely wealthy family. And this is the idea, the mother's idea of putting the children to bed. Okay? Anne would bathe the kids. She brushed their teeth. She put their jammies on them. She closed the blinds. She got them in bed, tucked them in. And then right at the end, mommy would come in and give them a little peck on the cheek and, and go out. Right? That, that's, what, that's what people who can afford it do. Because they, we, this woman considered herself to be above all of these normal mommy things. And this is what any of us would do if we had wealth and power. Now imagine having all the power in the universe and then making for yourself a story of being a human. Right? Wouldn't you come into Herod's house or the Emperor of Rome's house? Would you come into a carpenter's house? I mean, it just Jesus is doing something here that's shocking. And this is why people didn't like it. The high-born and upper classes don't degrade themselves. Jesus' humility runs counterintuitively to how men, all of us, view fame and position. Now, on top of that, Buddha, Allah, the pantheistic multitude of Hinduism, no other religion's central message is the humiliation of their god. No other religion has at the center of it the humiliation of their own god. Right? Think of Muslims. They don't like it when you insult the prophet of, of Allah, and they will burn buildings down and blow, blow buildings up in order to defend his name. Whereas at the center of our religion is the utter humiliation of our god. That is what makes the, the gospel so profound, so profound. He laid aside of his own volition, and in such a way, this is Jesus, he laid aside his divinity of his own volition in such a way that Israel, the people of God, didn't recognize him from his own self-revelation. He was unrecognizable as God. His apostles rebuked him for talking about himself in a way that they thought was beneath him. The religious leaders and his own followers were baffled and indignant in Jesus' presentation of the humility of God. Okay? The, uh, the gospel is an atomic bomb to the arrogance and self-importance of mankind. And we have only covered the incarnation at this point. We're only getting started. The humiliation of Jesus is an offense to the conceited sensibilities of every human being. No person, if they could avoid it, would submit themselves to what Jesus submitted himself to. And I'm not just talking about the cross. Like I said before, the indignities of everyday life were things we would all avoid. Okay, we are proud. We, we think highly of ourselves. Our holiness, our piety, our beauty, our physiques, our wealth, our prestige, we don't grasp, we always grasp our, our dignity greedily. We always hold on to it. 
Our pride prevents us from admitting fault. We keep the difficult and unlovely people at more than arm's length. We grasp at equality with God constantly, right? We try to control everything in our lives. We try to control everything in everyone else's life. We want to be God. We grasp after that kind of control and power. We fear others, what others will think of us, so we avoid any real vulnerability, any openness, any fellowship. Christ's humiliation is solace for hearts striving endlessly after esteem, dignity, and the idol of self. This is medicine we all need badly. His example is medicine we all need desperately. Have this mind among yourselves. Christ laid it all aside to serve. God became nothing so that you might inherit in him everything. Stop grasping. Let go of yourself. Cling on to Jesus in his humiliation. Okay? Ponder his humiliation often because we all need to think quite a lot less of ourselves and more of him. Now, if we think that Jesus couldn't go any lower at this point, Paul reveals that Jesus lowered himself to the point of slavery and manhood as a mere means to go even lower. Jesus was not done. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't stop at slavery and merely being found in the form of a human. He didn't just make possible the act of dying. He obeyed his father's will to the point of dying. Again, okay, he makes it possible that he can die, but then he goes so far as to actually do it. The Messiah needed to die. He needed to be the perfect sacrifice to turn away God's wrath and end the reign of death and sin in humanity. Jesus didn't come to teach, to just teach, and just to minister, and just to perform acts of service. He came to live a perfect life, suffer for it, and die for it. If that were not humiliating enough, he was put to death with crucifixion, the most painful form of execution reserved for the lowest scum on earth, slaves and criminals. Now, it's very hard for us to understand the cultural context of the crucifixion. I've never heard of anyone actually being crucified under any sort of legitimate government in modern world. I mean, crucifixion isn't even an option, really. Uh, We don't have slaves. Most criminals are not put to death though most of them should be. And when they are, we go about out of our way to ensure that it's done very humanely and off somewhere quietly in a corner, right? The process of putting someone to death now is it's like you go to a doctor's office and they kind of numb you, they give you poison, you kind of don't even notice anything, and then you're dead. It's very humane. But in Jesus' day, uh, the noble way to be executed for men of distinction was to actually have their head cut off in one stroke. This is, again, very If you're a man of honor and distinction, the only way that's reasonable to put to death is you lower your own head willingly, and in one stroke, they strike off your head. Anything less than that, any, any kind of suffering, any uncomfortableness of any kind was considered degrading to sort of men of distinction. Warriors weren't put to, to death this week. Kings weren't put to death this way. Now, this idea lasted into nearly modern times. Uh, Mary, Queen of the Scots, was executed by Elizabeth, Queen of, the, of England. Now, it took more than one stroke. It's a terrible, I've read it, it's a terrible account. The guy really botched it badly. So he strikes off Mary's head, and he doesn't quite get all the way through, and all these people are sitting there in a sort of this theatrical state event, and they have to whack her again. And when Elizabeth heard the account of this, I mean, she literally tore her clothes and was like, feared that God was going to judge her. Uh, And as the account was read in sort of um, 
courts all over Europe, everybody was scandalized by the fact that they made Mary go through this. They thought it was so degrading of someone of noble birth to be put to death that way. And, and they all did curse Elizabeth, hoping that you know, her end would be even more gruesome. Crucifixion was a cruel, painful, degrading way to die that was more actually like torture than any sort of real execution. Now, when Paul mentions the enemies of the cross in Philippians 3.18, he means those who oppose Christianity because of the disgrace of this form of death. Okay, we're, we're used to hearing that enemies of the cross as if people are just opposed to Christianity itself because the cross represents Christianity. But a lot of people's stumbling block, they go through the whole Gospels, they're like, okay, I agree, I get it, I'm with you, the Messiah. Whoa, 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 whoa. How was he put to death? Like a slip. And people literally couldn't handle it. In, in Paul's day, that's why a lot of Jews stumbled. It was so degrading to be put to death that way that they figured no legitimate Lord would ever substitute um, subject himself to it. Okay, to be hung on a tree was considered a curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now this is the point of that. Why did he go that low? Why did he allow that kind of degradation? He wanted to eliminate any pretense. He didn't just become a man. He was put to death. He wasn't just put to death. He was put to death in the most disgusting and despicable way possible. I mean, there was no, no lower form of public execution than the cross. Now, every lawbreaker is cursed by God. But Jesus became a curse for us to lift the curse from us. Jesus was not ashamed of this form of death. He didn't use his deity to avoid it. It was required by the will of his father. And so Jesus endured this indignity of all, this worst indignity of all so that he might call you his, that nothing might stand in the way of your fellowshipping with the triune God. He left no pretense. He left no doubt. He went as low as he possibly could go, which is shocking given from how high he started. Now, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He gave away the highest honor and nobility and position so that you might become rich. But how? He died. This is usually where the train comes off the tracks when we're describing what the gospel is. We get that he lived. We get that he died. We get that... It took away our sins, and then so, most times people would mention the resurrection, but it kind of stops after that. But as far as Paul is considered, that's only half the gospel. Jesus lives so that you can live. Okay? He didn't die so that you can live. He died so that you could die and not fear it. He died to take away the terror of it. He died to take away the curse of it. He died to take away the sin of it. Okay? And he lives so that you can live. That's the other half of the gospel. He's alive now so that you can live every day. He didn't stay in the ground. He came back so that you could live every day. The second rail of the gospel is that Jesus was glorified. He didn't stay dead. He went into the ground, but it could not hold him. The Father and the Spirit did not leave Jesus in the humiliation that he had submitted himself to. Now, how did God the Father and the Spirit respond to the humility of Jesus? Okay, this first half of this thing has taken us a long time. The beautiful part, I promise, is the second half takes us almost no time at all. Because the response of God the Father and the Spirit is immediate, it's profound, and it's simple. Okay, this is what it says. 
Therefore, God was, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, because of Jesus' humiliation, obedience, and sacrifice, God responded in three ways. First, he raises him from the dead, as it says in Acts 2.24, by the Holy Spirit, as it says in Romans 8.11. The Father and Spirit regenerated Jesus' body in the tomb. This is known as the vindication of Jesus. Everything Jesus said about himself as the Messiah, all of his I Am statements in the Gospel of John, everything he said about the Father, his judgments on the religious leaders of his day, his proclamation of the kingdom of God, all of it was vindicated by God. Jesus said he was God. Jesus said he was the Messiah. He dies. He goes into the ground. Everyone's a little confused for three days. And God the Father and the Spirit respond by, yes, he is who he said he was. Their testimony of him is extremely important when it comes to this. He said he was God, and God responded by proving that he was, by bringing him back. The Father and the Spirit responded to Jesus' character consistent with the values of a God who is love. Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Greater love knows no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. Jesus laid his privilege and his majesty down to enter the flesh to fulfill the promise of God to liberate us from sin and death. The Father and Spirit responded by honoring Jesus, raising his body to his proper position at the right hand of the Father. The name given him is that now the greatest name in the universe. Okay, don't think that they gave him a different name. He's always had the name Jesus. The angels came and said, this baby is Jesus, because Jesus had already existed from eternity past. And in this part here, they're not saying he gives him a new name. The name they gave him, which means Savior, is now the greatest name spoken by any, any human, any angel, anywhere. His name is greater because his work is greater. His name is greater because his position now is higher than any man could ever have dreamed that a man would go. And at the revelation of that name, all shall bow and praise him. And upon that name alone, the Father bestows the title of Lord. So God responds by raising Jesus, honoring his name above every name, and giving him this title, Lord. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, we are told that God performs his mighty deeds so that people shall know that I am the Lord and so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God wants us to know him so intimately that we have a first-name basis with him. Have this mind among yourselves. Jesus, at the appointed time, did greater deeds of love and his humiliation than God had ever done since the creation of the world. And so, so that the Lord Jesus would humble all people, so that the Lord Jesus would deliver all people, so that the Lord Jesus would fill all of our mouths with praise. This is the mystery that Paul declared. This is the message of the New Testament. This is the good news. Believe it and you are saved today and every day, henceforth into eternity under his rule and reign, under his power and under his goodness, the humble, the compassionate, the loving king, Jesus. Okay, Jesus accomplished our salvation and he rules the heavens and the earth today. This is what we have to grab hold, hold on to. Right? If I came to you and I said, okay, there's this king, and you all have to submit to him, that would be, it's difficult to submit. None of us like to submit. Why? Because we doubt the goodness of the person we have to submit to. Right? My wife knows me. 
which is what makes submission to me so difficult, right? I, I, I've known my bosses. I've known the president. You know, I read about the president. It's hard to submit to people whose goodness is in doubt. No one is more worthy to wear the crown of the cosmos than Jesus, okay? The least shall be the greatest, and through Christ's humiliation, he truly became the least. Thus, he's the greatest. We can trust him. Look at what he did. The reason these two things go together is this. He demonstrates his humility. He demonstrates his love. He demonstrates his selflessness. He's the only person who could possibly wear that crown. He's the only one. And so when we come and submit to his utter and complete power, we know we're submitting to his utter and complete goodness because we've we've seen it. And if you just get the goodness without the power, he's weak. He's limp-wristed. He doesn't do us any good. If you go to him and it's just the power, that is terrifying. A guy who could say, wither, and the tree withers, rise, and and the person rises, crushes you with a word, that person with that kind of power is terrifying unless you see the other half. His goodness, his humiliation, how far he was willing to go to degrade himself for you is what makes his power so wonderful. Because in those hands now are the scepter. In those hands are the book of life. And those hands now are working, caressing, manipulating, leading, guiding. They're the hands at the center of the power of the universe, these kind and gracious hands that we see in his humiliation. That is the gospel. That is the goodness and the power of our King Jesus. This is the good news. No one is more humble, gentle, or loving, and no one has more power than him. Come and believe. Come and lie down. Come and worship. This is the good news that we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks. Have this mind amongst yourselves. In his hands alone can we place our cares, our weariness, our sins, our fears, our children, our spouses, our jobs, wealth, wills, our hearts, our very selves. For he has proven his goodness and his humiliation, and so he wields his power over our daily lives in whatever circumstances we find ourselves with that same humility and selfless love. Trust him, declare him, live in imitation of him. Have this mind amongst yourselves. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your son, for his humility, his selflessness, his love. Father, it's hard to believe that someone who has everything, who is above everyone, would lower himself to the point of walking amongst us and would go even lower to die for us and in such a humiliating fashion. We pray, Father, that you give us ears to hear this, eyes to see it, hearts to cling on to it, and minds to know it. We pray, Father, that as we look at this goodness and this humility and this selfless love, that you teach us as well the power of our Lord Jesus, that we might go to him and trust him, and that he might deliver us out of our sin, that he might form and shape us in his image, that he would care for our children and our spouses and our community. I pray, Father, that you help us to understand these two things, that Christ is our Lord, that Jesus is his name, and that we belong utterly and completely to him. Fill our hearts with praise now, Father. Amen.